Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome to a new week, Solar Warrior. Here we go. This is Two for Tuesday. Whether that's a tactical Tuesday or just content from one of our many live events like SPI Podcast Lounge, this is going to be a short form conversation typically with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast as I know you will. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations in the blog at mysuncast.com. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful conversation on Suncast. So Sheldon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Um, you know, we've been having conversations about, uh, our first conversation about this, I think I want to say was about seven years ago. I, I believe it was. <laughs> yeah, you invited me into your offices at Recurrent to tell me because to tell me about this, you know, this concept of the merchant tale and about merchant power and what an important concept this was. And I, as a journalist who came from outside of solar industry, I don't have a power marketing background. I found this fascinating. I started to cover uh, merchant solar projects in Chile, uh, the Aurosolo one in Baja. I covered the disaster that happened when those Chilean plants went underwater, the scandal, the OPIC money. Ooh, boy, that was that was quite a story. And you know, here we are. We're back. I, I, you know, I didn't think about merchant power for years because I thought, you know, this is it. It failed. It was a disaster. No one's going to do it. And now here we are, years later, and we're finding that there are shorter and shorter PPAs, particularly in Texas. The PPAs have gotten a lot shorter, and there's these this new hedges coming into the market. And this is, you know, obviously, this isn't pure merchant, but this is a move to a very different model within the solar industry. What's going on here? So I think it helps to start by sort of grounding ourselves in a couple of things. So you and I have talked about this recently, and I just want to, you know, sort of lay out um, certainly my, my understanding as a, as a power marketing and finance professional um, on a couple of terms. So when we talk about merchant, uh, we're talking about... Um, you know, uncontracted power sales. So revenue that does not have a fixed price on it per megawatt hour. Um, you know, that could be, there's a whole lot of forms that could take, um, but that's, that's pretty much it. When, when people talk about merchant power, they typically are talking about, um, you know, it originated sort of back in the, um, when, when, when the gas-fired era moved from um, the PERPA regulations and the... Um, into the exempt wholesale generators, if you will, when they, when they redesigned the power markets for competitive um, power. And the merchant power model came out where the Calpines and the AESs and the Skygens were doing uh, assets that at first were sort of 50% hedged, right? Because you had these power markets that had huge spikes and they would ramp to hit the spikes and there was a lot more uh, kind of frothy revenue. And, uh, and so, 
you know, that's, that's where it came from. And eventually that got shorter and shorter and shorter because people wanted to capture more and more of these, you know, high prices in the market. Um, but, but ultimately, um, you know, it, it, it is, it is argue, you know, typically has a bad name in the market, merchant power, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's the sort of merchant power business model. Um, and one more definition before we start, and that is a hedge. Um, typically a hedge which comes from kind of hedge accounting in most cases, uh, is uh, more of a financially settled product, typically with a financial counterparty in, in the, the power market. So a lot of banks uh, and, and power trading shops, hedge funds, those kinds of guys will trade. Um, they'll, they'll write you financial swaps, right? So they'll say you take the power at a, at a certain point on the grid um, and uh, nobody actually physically delivers power to the bank. The bank is not actually physically using electricity. They're simply saying, we will observe the price at that node. You will pay us whatever the price is at that node as it flexes up and down, and, and we will pay you a fixed price. So they're just financial swaps. Right. So that's a hedge and a merchant um, definition. Um, you know, I think the next sort of grounding point is just the fact that, um, generally speaking, going fully merchant is not a good idea. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, a lot of people are just sort of um, really excited in solar because all of a sudden you can just build more plants and you don't need contracts. That's not, that's not actually um, how, the, how it works. Um, you know, you're taking on a spectacular amount of risk. So, um, you know, increasingly, I think people need to, on the developer side, become a heck of a lot more sophisticated. Um, and and there, are, there are smart ways to take on market risk. Market and merchant, I'll, I'll sort of inter, inter, interlace here. I use market because merchant is a bit of a bad word in our industry. Right. Um, there are smart ways to do that. Um, you can put on shorter hedges or shorter power contracts and then manage the risk. You know, there's things like, I won't go into what they are, but you can do things like a stack and roll. You can, um, you can, uh, uh, you can put, you know, revenue put tails on the back of your contract. You can, you can... Um, there's a, a whole lot of active management strategies that, that people who typically take more market risk are set up to handle, right? They right. have a trading shop and an origination function and those sorts of things. They don't just dump it into the market. So, Yeah, and I think we're talking about two different things here. One is we're talking about merchant tails, yeah. which really is, a, you know, it is merchant. You basically built a plant. You've got a PPA for a certain length, and after that PPA is up, Sure, you can look for another PPA, but you don't, at the time of building, have contracted revenue past a certain point. And then we're talking about these hedges. So for me, the hedges are particularly interesting because for the entire time that I've been covering solar, you had to have a PPA. You could not build anything without a PPA. Yeah. And hedges are a price guarantee. Obviously, they set a price floor, but they're not a PPA. It's a new model. It's a big shift in the, in the, yeah. in the solar market. For, for sure. And I think, um, you know... Uh, and, and I don't want to be—I don't want to be the guy who's sort of uh, the the you know the the downer here. But um, but I think the other uh, mis misunderstanding that you know folks in the solar industry really need to understand is, um, you know, just because there is uh, a new set of buyers in the market, which is really what, where kind of the hedge concept comes from. You know, uh, again, banks buying financially, typically hedging. Um, you know, what you're seeing people sort of maybe on a, on a misnomer basis sort of equating with hedges, and some of them are hedges, are buyers like um, the big commodity shops, big oil and gas companies, big hedge funds, um, big industrials with huge loads, right? Um, 
those guys are doing hedges or in, in many cases they're actually taking it physical though so it actually is just an offtake contract right but but those those are the family of people doing these shorter term contracts right um, I think the thing to understand though is that people sort of see it as well again you know uh, I don't have to I don't have to bid I don't have to go get a PPA I don't have to do you know s- slip my own throat to go get get uh, the power, a CCA right. to try and buy my power for you know with no credit rating um, and uh, uh, I think what you have to understand is that it's 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 not just the the, the PPA store, right? right. You know, I mean, you, you, <laughs> no, you still you have know. to go shop and get that hedge. That's right, and yeah. and and, the, and there's the, not a, the, an infinite amount of them available. Clearly, totally. and and you know the the guys that are doing those are very sophisticated, and the two things to point out really are, you know, they you have to speak their language, and I don't think a lot of people in the solar business do, um, particularly not a lot of smaller independent developers. Um, so you see them doing business with a lot of the EDFs and other folks, you know, that, that, um, that they're normally doing business with because, you know, they already do, you know, Brookfields, people who've been in wind or gas or other places where they've always been doing, you know, where, or where they've more recently been doing hedge type transactions. The, the second piece is just that um, one of the other reasons why a lot of small independents are, 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 there's a lot of hype about that market, but they're not able to jump into it is uh, it requires an enormous amount of credit. Right. And so you either need to put, you know, you're taking huge um, uh, financial um, and, and commodity positions. Right. And so the mar- you, you have to deal with um, banks will look at the duration of the contract. They will look at the volatility in the market and they will price credit based on what, you know, statistically what the maximum loss could be. Right. And so it, over a, the longer, you know, your tenor goes out, the more the bigger that credit balloons. Because, you know, you could deviate this way, you could deviate that way. Statistically, there's more risk. And so um, you, get, you get a lot of, you know, for instance, I'll tell you that um, on a 200 to 250 megawatt sort of hedge type transaction with a, with a commodity player or a bank, you're probably talking about 35 to $50 million of credit of an LC at execution. And then you have to be able to... Uh, either continue to post that and, and be able to actually margin as the market moves during operations sometimes, or um, you can transition that to a lien on the asset. But then to do the lien on the asset, you have to have the, the off-taker and the tax equity and the debt all negotiate together for, you know, so it's, it's an, a tremendously complicated um, uh, access to the market is actually has a very high bar, right. which I think is a good thing. I mean, I, I think... You know, we're at a point you where... don't necessarily want just anyone. Yeah. I mean, solar is becoming a business like any other where you really do have to, uh, on the developer side, you have to understand the deep nuances of the power markets and the financial markets and how they overlay in order to be successful. Um, and what's interesting is on the investor side, that's, that's true as well, right? Right, so, right. And at the same time, you know, I think all of this is happening within a larger environment. When we first started writing about solar, it was very difficult to find investors. People were really looking for money. And now, the interesting thing is I've watched this evolution. I've watched solar companies create these yield codes, investors invest in them. Solar companies sell, routinely just sell off their yield codes, sell them off to big asset managers. So the big asset managers are seeing these obviously as something valuable to pick up. And then at this point, we're seeing the wall of money. We're seeing all of these investors who would like to get into the predictable returns of solar. And so I'm wondering how much that interest by the financial community in investing in solar is driving some of these alternative models to offtake. 
or th- in, rather this alternative model to offtake? For, for sure. I mean, there's no doubt that it is because developers have in their mind that there is an unlimited appetite for projects. And so you have seen a lot of developers, um, you know, do very well. Um, but I think a handful of things on the investor community. One, uh, we spent the last decade basically, um, uh, you know, um, building a market of people who want to buy bonds. You know, and, and our, you know, inside our shop, we call it the green bond, right? A contract of, you know, 15 years or better. Um, it started at kind of 25, then it came to 20, now it's 15. And you've got a lot of investors who, through that transition, they've just kind of kept squinting as it got shorter and shorter and been like, well, if you kind of look at it, it's a long-term contract, right? You know, and, and, uh, and they go in and they invest on, you know, kind of bond-like returns, right? I mean, in the beginning of solar, when you got a 25-year RPS contract from SCE, you know, you literally went in, you tacked on 25, 50 basis points of premium for the operating yield, for the operational risk, and you were otherwise just issuing an SCE bond, right? So you had a bunch of people show up to buy SCE bonds. And, you know, I mean, the analogy I use is like a treasury auction, right? In a treasury auction, you don't have a bunch of people evaluating the business model of the U.S. Treasury to try to understand what the risk is, right? They, they show up, they know what the risk is, it's the risk-free rate, and they just bid their cost of capital, right? And so... That's, we've been having treasury auctions in, in solar for the better part of 10 years now. And, you know, the problem now is that there's no more product left, right? The PPAs, the compliance-based PPAs that were longer tenor, RPS-type stuff is going away. And increasingly, you have to participate in the energy market like any other generator. Right. And as you do that, um, that's where these shorter tenor contracts are coming from. But there's a tremendous mismatch between the buyer community that we've built up over the last decade and where we're going. And so what's really interesting to me, and I think will we'll define the future of the solar industry, is we are seeing a, a, a rotation of the types of buyers who will, get, who will own solar plants. They're moving to a much more sophisticated group. They're moving away from sort of um, pension funds. Not that those guys aren't sophisticated, but those are, those are long-term yield buyers. We're moving away from those folks. We're moving much, much more back to, you know, You'll see a lot more private equity power funds get involved. Um, you know, as the returns move from sort of what at, a, at, a, at their crushingly lowest point when everybody was showing up for the treasury auction was, you know, six on levered, se- you know, the, we, we joked about the, the levered sevens, right? Things were clearing in the levered sevens. That's, that's, that's absurdly low. And, and what you'll see now is people moving in. Um, that group of buyers, as the tenors came in, they've, they've, they lost the ability to squint and sort of equate 15 years with 25 because, um, you know, they realized they were taking more and more back-end merchant or market risk. And, and so those guys are now getting gun-shy on this new class of assets, and you're seeing these guys who, who usually buy power assets, wind, so, uh, gas, with, with shorter tenor contracts that trade in the nine unlevered, you know, high call it high single digits unlevered, low double digits levered. Those guys are coming in now and they're saying, why would I buy a, a partially merchant gas plant in PJM? Well, PJM is a bad example, but in another market, when I, which may or may not, may, may be shut down for carbon or something later, when I can buy a similar yielding you know, solar asset with a similar you know, contractual tenor and, and market exposure. Hey, Warrior, in this fast-paced change, of renewables, what inverter company can you really count on these days? Well, how about CPS America with its 99% inverter availability guarantee? That's right, you can get five to 25 year uptime guaranteed by CPS. 
and CPS has a turnkey field service with both preventative and corrective maintenance and service plans tuned to meet the needs of asset owners and O&M providers alike. If you'd like to find out more about what CPS can do for your C&I and utility business, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. Hey, are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize the ROI for your customer? Extensible Energy's Demand X software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches that data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes, increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Head to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your project and to learn more about Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers. You can learn more at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. So, you know, to get to this, to get to this merchant tale, which is the first thing that we discussed seven years ago. So I recall First Solar's Berea project in Texas it was a merchant project. They built it on a merchant basis. They were always looking for a PPA, but they just said, hey, let's give this a try. And they lost a lot of money on it. And then they got a PPA. And, and I found that interesting, given that it seems like if you could do this anywhere, you could do it in ERCOT, given the intense need for power in the summer, the, the really high caps on how expensive power can get. You know, I mean, it's almost a pure market there. Yep. Uh, and yet it, it didn't seem to make money. And now, here we are, a few years later, you know, these 10-year contracts. What happens after that 10 years? Are, are these assets going to be able to find another contract? Or are they just simply going to say, hey, we've paid off our debt. We've, you know, we've made some money on this. We're going to make the rest on the market. Yeah, you know, I think, I think a lot, I mean, the smart folks will roll forward their, their contracts years at a time, right? You'll see people beginning to put on volumes for two years beyond the contract tenor, you know. So as soon as, if you've got a 10-year contract, you know, by year five, you're able to sort of address a fairly liquid market. I mean, you know, it's not liquid, but, you know, years five through eight, you, people will transact with you for that, and you start managing your risk forward. Maybe you put a put option on it, and then eventually you roll out to a swap at a, at a nice time when you can get a nice high price. You know, I think... I think um, Again, you know, going fully merchant is is, yeah. is, is not really a business. Is, you know, hope is not a strategy, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I think I, I think the thing to realize is this: like, if, if if I'm if I'm a buyer right now and I'm looking at these assets, right? Um, and the big question is, yeah, what happens when I get to the end, right? What 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 I'm going to look and say is. Um, I could go buy the same asset in Texas, right? I could go buy the same asset with a 10-year PPA on it or a 15-year PPA on it, right? And I'm, so I'm just going to tell you about how, if I'm a buyer, and what I think smart buyers are thinking about back-end risk. Um, if I go buy a 10-year PPA right now, or not a PPA, but a hedge or something in the open market where I don't have to, you know, I, I can actually probably get a price that's in the upper 20s, um, you know, Maybe a little lower because ERCOT's come off a bit. But let's call it mid-20s on a 10-year deal. Um, uh, now, the reason that's a premium is because you have to have credit and sophistication and access to, to, the, to the banks and all of that. But you can get a market price, you know. And then 
or I can go and get a 15-year deal by slitting my you know throat for Austin Energy. And I mean, and I'm not taking away from those guys. I'd be buying. I'd be buying just like they are. But you know, and maybe that deal is 19 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. So the 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 interesting thing is, if I'm a buyer and I look at that, um, the the 15-year deal is you know is being overpriced, if you will. People are overpaying for that tenor. And so if you discount that at what, where that deal might be trading, call it like seven levered, you know, and uh, you discount the shorter tenor contract at, at where that will trade is maybe like a, in the nines unlevered, what you actually find is that because of the higher price, um, you, you, you oftentimes find that the, the present value of the actual contracted revenue um, on both of those projects as a percentage of the total revenue is not that different um, because the, you're getting such a higher price on the shorter tenor contract. Sure. And so, so that's what you need for financing. Yeah. I, I, I mean, mean, you need that guaranteed amount of revenue. It doesn't matter what period, as much what period it comes over. Absolutely. So if you have that portion, you still have that same access to financing. And yet it yeah. seems like people who are financing solar projects are getting comfortable taking more and more risk. That, that's true. I mean, like, those banks have been taking that risk in other markets for a long time. I mean, at, right. at, at, at Calpine, people, you know, people have always financed um, a, a portion of the merchant tail, right? There's a yeah. contract period. And, then, and, and some of that has to do with what we call the quasi-contracted price, which is what I think people need to start getting used to in the marketplace, which is, you know, um, as contracts were long and then started shorting up, everybody sort of fixated on these, these metrics that, frankly, were really not very financially sophisticated and kind of arbitrary, like contracted period return. Okay, well, that's an interesting thing if you've got a 20-year contract or you've got a, a standard length. But as contracts come in on, on tenor, it turns out to be kind of a useless metric because if my contracted period return on a 10-year deal versus a 20-year deal, of course it's going to be less, but you also now have 10 more years of power that you're selling, right? Yeah, and yeah so definitely. And so we work with this concept of like quasi-contracted mm-hmm. where... You know, we look at, if I'm a buyer, I look at, I'd much rather take a $27 contract for 10 years and then get comfortable um, that essentially, look, if power trading at 20 bucks right now or 22 or whatever, you know, there's, you, you've got to believe that an electron from year 10 to 20 is going to be worth 10 bucks, right? And so there's this notion of kind of like almost a quasi put to the market where it's like, it just can't get lower than X. There's a portion yeah. of yeah. merchant risk you, you are willing to underwrite. And I think both equity is beginning to look at it that way, right? Which is, what is, can I, instead of getting, can I get my money back on the contract? Can I get my money back on the higher price, shorter tenor contract plus some ridiculously low assumption of like, how bad does it yeah. need to get? How bad can and, it get? And that's what right. debt's been doing for a long time now. And that's how they underwrite kind of a merchant tail, right? Because it can get ridiculously bad before they get, you know, harmed. Well, and yet it's funny when we think about that, when we think about power prices into the future, which is obviously extremely speculative, I I can't help but notice that there's going to be a huge difference between straight solar and solar plus storage. Mm -hmm. For straight solar, the more solar that we add to a grid, the more the midday price depresses. So perhaps some very pessimistic future price assumptions are reasonable if you're talking about a whole lot of solar. But with solar yeah. plus storage, you can sell that at any point over a 24-hour period. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, when, so, when, when you such get... Such a different animal. How do, you, how do you deal with what it, how completely different those are when thinking about long-term First, first of all, I think most people are kind of thinking about storage wrong. I mean, you know, there's, there's niche markets where you can do, um, you know, more bespoke products. There's places where you can pick up subsidies. 
and those will be great, and that'll drip, you know grow the technology in that. But I mean, the the, the holy grail is like. Here's a 7 by 16 shape, like a block product that trades in a liquid market. And here's a solar shape, which is typically like a 12 by 24, right? And when, when the, price, the price of those two things, the spreads in the, in the markets and commodity markets right now are, you know, 5 to 10 to California sometimes because of the duck curve, yeah. you know, 15, 20 bucks, right? And, and uh, that right there is the value of storage, right? Because anything that can turn a 12 by 24 shape into a 7 by 16 block that's the value of storage. And so um, I think what you're going to see is you don't necessarily need to go full 7 by 16. I think you'll see people signing up 7 by 16 with maybe two hours of battery storage, and you'll see them right. pushing the, the size, the overbuild on the, on, the, on the solar. They'll clip more. They'll, they'll square off the shoulders. They'll put two hours of storage because the duration is what's expensive, and they'll start selling 7 by 16 blocks where they take a little more um, open risk but at, at reasonable times. The other thing to say on, on, the, on this is, you know, um, you know, welcome to the power markets, to all the investors and banks, right? I mean, like, the reality is, and most of them are very sophisticated and can, and can take this on, but, but um, now you have to think, right? And so uh, I'm, I'm very, I'm kind of tired of having, you know, having to explain over and over and over again why ERCOT is not California, right? Mm-hmm. ERCOT has some of the highest penetration of wind in the country, and so... You know, as we build out solar, um, and, and the, the load shape tends to be um, hugely cooling-based, right? So, right? so you've right. got a huge peak coincidence huge with solar shape. in the summer. And so yeah. huge peak coincidence with solar shape, wind that blows in the off-peak periods um, that is right now just dumping a lot of the time, right? right. And, and, and so that, that blocks out, actually. Like, you've got, you've got much more room to build before you hit probably a duck curve in, in Texas. It's a much sure. more robust market to the duck curve. And in addition to all of that, you know, a lot of these guys are getting whipsawed and caught on wind, and they think, oh, my God, it's going to happen again in solar because these shorter tenor hedges with like fixed, what, you know, fixed shapes, essentially, um, that are wind shapes, um, so they go hedge like a wind shape of output, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem then is, and it's a fixed shape, but the problem then is when it gets really hot and a lot of times the wind doesn't blow, now they've got to deliver, you know, into these nine thousand dollar, you know, price spike hours, and they're short. They're not generating right, and so their shape risk is actually negatively correlated with you know value, right? It's a negative valuation right, right. in ERCOT. Whereas, um, so their mismatch, their, their their mismatch between their actual generation profile and the shape they have to put into most of their offtake contracts leaves them exposed at the worst possible time. Solar shapes, on the other hand, um, you're actually typically going to be at relative to the shape of your off-taker contract that, you got, that you're getting paid on, the, the, um, the, the generation is likely to be over-generated in the right. hours where the price spikes occur. Right. So actually, what's, what's killing wind is actually going to make fixed price or fixed shape, like hedge-type arrangements in Texas, better for solar. Sure, sure. And, and I think this basically comes down to when does it produce? And solar's got a tremendous advantage. I've been waiting for... Burkott to blow up like this. We've seen it coming for a long time. Um, so quickly, but we, you know, we're going to have to go soon and move on to the next guest. But I just, we've, we covered uh, your company, Intersect Power, your, some new developments that you've announced this week. 1.7 gigawatts of power contracts for projects scheduled to start construction within the next 13 months. Yeah. yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. Well, In Texas and California. Uh, yeah. We, you know, three physical sites. Um, five, five different legal entity, you know, five different projects. Um, 
you know, two pairs of sister projects that have taken together, you know, would be in the top five by scale, you know, for scale in North America. So, um, you know, uh, going into Intersect really focused on um, taking the lessons learned from Recurrent Energy and, and redeploying those. You know, at Recurrent, we were never quite as big as the SunEds or the Cypresses of the world, but, um, you know, we got over 200 people at a certain point. And what you learn is that, you know, uh, when you're big, you've got overhead, so you go chase the, you know, portfolio of five megawatt deals, you know, five megawatt carports in upstate New York. And, uh, and then those are really hard, so you have to add more people. So you have <laughs> to chase more carports, right? Uh -oh. um, <laughs> yeah. so, so our I model is, is you know, yeah. our model is small team, big projects, very few of them. So yeah. we did all that in just over 24 months with, you know, $25 million of equity and a 20-person team. Wow. So, um, you know, pound for pound, um, I'm incredibly, you know, incredibly proud of our team and, and what we've been able to accomplish. Um, uh, and, uh, and we had a lot of fun. You know, we've had a lot of fun doing it, and um, uh, it's, uh, we're gonna, you know, we got a lot, more, a lot more where that came from. So. And some of the shortest contracts I've seen, a 10-year contract in there. Yeah, there's a 10-year contract in there. But, I mean, I, not, to, not, to, not to overblow it, because what we did was we sort of dipped our toe in the water, right? I mean, the average contract life on that portfolio is, you know, 12 and a half years or something like that. So it's not, not well, tremendously different. Well, compared to two or than, three years ago, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not tremendously different than what we're seeing in contracts totally. right now. But compared to two or three years ago, this is still huge. Yeah. And I had not actually seen a 10-year before this. I'd heard about them. But no one, I'd never actually identified a project that had a ten, only a 10-year contract. Well, at the same time, though, you know, we're doing some more sophisticated things. Again, you can't. You can't just kind of keep shortening it up and kind of, you know, we're doing, we're doing things in the, on the California pro project where, um, you know, we split recs and power. And so for the first, you know, eight to 10 years of the contracts, right. we're getting $30 prices all in, you know, where if you go out and you don't have the sophistication to, 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 um, to split those up and go get a hedge in the, in the, in the energy markets, you don't have the credit to do that. Um, you really have no choice but to bid bundled product to CCAs, bundled Rex and Power for the low 20s. So, you know, there are ways to make a lot more money. It's just much harder. <laughs> right, right. Much more complex. Sheldon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right. We're here at the Podcast Lounge, sponsored by Radiant Reit and produced by Suncast Media. This is Christian Roseland, U.S. Editor at PV Magazine, and I've been speaking with Sheldon Kimball. All right, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. But I do hope that you'll check out the other Two for Tuesday episodes and let me know what you think of these shorter format discussions. You want more like this? You can find more than 200 episodes, resources, highlights from the discussions, along with social media links to each guest episode, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with the Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly emails or even joining the exclusive inner circle we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. A special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Follow the links there for any offers we've discussed here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>